Good morning, Hope. I'm Sparky Markey, and I get to open the book of James, Jesus' little brother. Uh, you have the scripture in your handouts. Let's begin with James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. And now for John book uh, chapter 7 verse 1 through 5 after this jesus went around in galilee he did not want to go about in judea because the jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him but when the jewish festival of tabernacles was near jesus's brothers said to him leave galilee and go to judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. I graduated college in 97 and was tasked to go back up to this summer camp in Michigan, where I had served three previous summers. Uh, to, to serve as a program director, and it was a it was a it was a good summer and good ministry growth for me and good work of God there. But right after I'd been there for about two weeks, I got a call from a family member saying that my aunt Jody, my mom's older sister, was in her last day. She'd been diagnosed with cancer about five years previous, passed away really the age I am right now, forty eight years old. And so I remember I went back and I only had one night I could come back to the Rockford area and stay before I had to be back with my duties. And so I went at the time Highland Hospital in Belvedere. She was in Highland Hospital. And I remember driving up there and I got to spend, I, I got home around 10 the night before, slept, got up, and I spent one day with her. It was my last day with her. And I grew up with my Aunt Jody. Was, she wasn't like a distant aunt. Like we lived in the same house till fourth grade. She was like a second mom. She probably disciplined me more than my mom did. And so I just remember this last day with my Aunt Jody. And when you're in one of those moments, you just pay close attention. There's probably a thousand conversations that I've just kind of forgotten or vaguely remember but that one I remember specifically, because it was my last one. And I listened to the words that she said, and she gave me encouragement and focus as I was finishing, as I'd just finished college and was enrolled in seminary. And I remember hearing and listening to her words very carefully. And I wish that we could do that every single time we open God's Word. Like every single time we open his word, we could feel the weight, the gravitas, the, the, the seriousness of what God's word is going to say. And I, and I say all that just to explain why we do what's called expository preaching. Where we don't try to come up with a topic and then scour the Bible to look for what we want to talk about. And there's times and places to do that. Please hear me. I'm not saying that should never happen. There are times where like, hey, we need to think about 
the Christian life in money or the Christian life in the body or the, whatever it may be. And then you go to look for what God has to say about that. That's a wonderful thing to do. But the kind of normal course is to say, God, what do you want to say to me? And he has written it in his word in these 66 books, Old and New Testament. And we want to hear every single word, every little phrase. And I've been teased because, I, I mean, I added John for us to read, but we're really looking at James 1.1. They're like, one verse, what in the world? Well, there's a lot even in one verse. And I just remember looking at my aunt, feeling the weight and the, and the gravity of that moment and listening to everything she was saying to me on that Saturday afternoon at Highland Hospital in Belvedere. And while not every Sunday is going to feel like that, it can't, over the course of our Christian lives, have we learned to be receptive. Lord, open my eyes. This is what the psalmist writes. Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things of your law. We want to hear from God's word, God's words. So pray with me if you will as we open this sermon and open this series that we would again listen to the words of our Lord. Father, we, we want to be receivers of your truth. We want to be willing to be spoken to, to, to be taught, to be rebuked, to be encouraged to be trained in righteousness. Although we know that some will reject your word outright, may that not be us. May we be ones who listen, who respond. Open our, open our eyes. Soften our hearts. Energize our hands and our feet. That we may respond and see what you say to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you a little context on the letter of James. Every time we begin a new book in a new series, I give a brief introduction, and I want to do the same. Well, James is an interesting character because he is one of the younger brothers of Jesus. Imagine that role. You could arguably say he's a half-brother. But James is one of the children of Mary and Joseph. They had several sons and several daughters, uh, and none of that family seemed to receive Jesus for who he was. But imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother. And imagine being an adult with him as an older brother, and really disliking him in a major way. I put John 7, 1 to 5 in there that Mark read for us because I want to give you a glimpse of what even adult James, prior to his conversion, thought about his brother. Jesus didn't go up to the feast, the Jewish festival of tabernacles, and his brothers in John 7, 3 mock him. It says Jesus' brothers said to him, but they're mocking him. They're... they're they're, they're goading him. They say, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. I'm adding in some tone. I guarantee you it was there. No one wants 
No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. What are they thinking about? What do the brothers think? You just want to be famous. We know you. You come from our family line. You're the same son of a carpenter that we are, which means you're nothing. In the ancient world, what your father was is what you were. And if your father didn't have the title king or Caesar, then neither would you. Since you are doing these things, they add, show yourself to the world. And then in case you missed it, which you shouldn't have, John the narrator in verse 5 of chapter 7 gives a little commentary. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now how in the world does a guy like James go from that? And we're not talking this when he was 12 and he got the smaller piece of cake. We're talking he's a grown man hearing fully about this ministry of Jesus. How in the world does that man go from being that attacker of Jesus before a Jewish festival in the middle of Jesus' earthly ministry to literally being martyred as a representative of the church in Jerusalem just a few years later? Scripture tells us that he was the lead elder of the church in Jerusalem. He was the equivalent of the senior pastor. He was portrayed as James the Just. That's how the legends describe him. Because he excelled in piety and religious devotion and prayer. He was martyred for his faith in teaching shortly after, arguably, shortly after writing this book. And the, and the traditions are split. Some say he was stoned to death. Others say he was beheaded. The only thing we know for sure is he was killed. So the same brother, maybe it was James, in a mocking tone, and a commentary in verse 5 of John 7 explaining they did not believe in him in a matter of years... Maybe not many. James became a leading witness to the beauty and truth of Jesus Christ. That's just powerful to think about. Here's some context of the letter of James. James is the leader in the Jerusalem church, and he's writing a pastoral letter. It's, not, it, it, it's meant to be a bit personal in the sense of They know who he is, and he knows many of them, but he doesn't mention a lot of them. He's getting to the point, to the subject matter. You're not going to see, like at the end of Romans, a ton of lists, and hey, bring me my coat, and say hi to so-and-so, and and, man, does she make good coffee. Like, you're not going to see that like in Romans 16. He's just like, hey, good to see you, greetings, bloop, then he gets to it. But he's writing to people who had been in the Jerusalem church, and almost certainly by the language he uses here, he's writing specifically to Jewish Christians. Now that, that, that's helpful to know, because he's writing the first generation of Christians who had been Jewish, who with all the activities of Jesus and the apostles in Jerusalem, came to faith. And let me tell you, when they came to faith, they were not welcomed by their families or their religious communities, or their employers anymore. They were, hor- they were treated horrifically. In fact, shortly after 
or, or, or after the ministry of Jesus, a massive famine went through Jerusalem and all of these Messianic Jews, these Christians, were blamed for that. Even more, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders went on a major persecution of anybody of Jewish descent who had believed in Jesus, forcing a max exodus. Except, do you know who wouldn't leave? The senior pastor. And he was killed for it. So he's writing this letter shortly before he is killed to a bunch of Jewish Christians who have been spread around. That's what, in in that first verse, there's that language to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That's Old Testament language used for the Jewish people in the Old Testament when they were no longer in Israel and they were in the pagan nations. He, he's like, I know you've, you've been forced out. You had to look for work because of famine or the persecution got so bad you had to leave. I'm writing to you, brothers and sisters, about being faithful and living a life in Christ. That changes a little bit this letter, doesn't it? It, it gives this it gives, a, it gives, there's that word, that gravitas. It gives a little weight to it. Because I want to hear what Pastor James wants to say. I wish I could hear more about his own testimony. I wish I could hear about what the people to whom he writes were going through. But I can only imagine that the letter of James has ministered to a whole lot of Christians in a whole lot of situations around the world over the last 2,000 years. People who have struggled because of their faith who have felt persecution, who have gone through massive economic and political turmoil, and who feel like outsiders in their own world. Well, let me give you one more insight into the letter. We we talked about the author and a little bit about the context. Let Let me talk about the content. James is utilizing a literary tradition called wisdom literature which is a specific mode of writing and instruction, right? So like Paul writes a little bit more like an academic. He's making an argument. So he, it's a bit more logical. It's a little, bit, a little bit more heady, right? A little precise with language, the, the, the theological terms. James is, not, James is more like a football coach. It's not fancy, but it's coming at you hard. Think of books like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. All of those books are in the wisdom tradition. And James is using their mode of speaking and thinking. I could summarize it a couple ways, and I will. Think of James as being deep pastoral exhortation and encouragement with strong connections to daily life. He's not going to explain all the whys, the theory behind things. He's going to get to the what pretty quick. You'll see this in the first chapter. Like We're we're, we're going to have to go slow because he just packs in in two or three statements in one or two verses like this loaded thing that you just got, it's going to knock you over if you try to take on more than five verses. We're not in 1 Samuel where you're going 30 verses a shot. Like literally you might have to go two or three verses because he's just giving you the force of things that you need to sit with. Let me describe this wisdom way of talking another way. Wisdom wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. 
It wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. That's why I started with that little illustration about my Aunt Jody. Because man, if, if you are worried about being offended, oh, get ready. Because James, or the Lord, through his word, not going to be afraid to say, hey, who do you think you are? Why are you doing that? Hey, come here a second. Let me talk to you. It's, it's quick. It's sharp. It's aggressive. Wisdom literature offers skill in the art of Christian living. God is so creative. He can use every form of language. He can use stories, beautiful stories with, 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 with plot and movements and, and twists and drama. He can, he can, he can use poetry to try to reach your heart and soul and your emotions. He can take the Apostle Paul and give theory and theological propositions that draw you into God's holiness and sovereignty, or he can take a football coach in a halftime locker room and just give it to you. So wisdom literature, like James, wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. So be ready. Because if, if you think that this is just going to be all about, hey, well done, good job, get ready. God is a holy God. We just sang those words. Nate just led us beautifully in that. You're just saying he is holy, set apart, other. And his holiness, he wants to see in this church and in your lives and homes. And he's not afraid point a finger and say, my child, who do you think you are? I'm going to get into your business and challenge how you live. And interestingly, if anybody had the right to say this, it might have to be the doubting, denying, rebuking brother James, who probably for 30 or at least a high 20 number of years mocked and ripped on his brother. And if Jesus never sinned, which is absolutely true, then think about that. He never retaliated. I didn't have a kid like that. Probably or guaranteed you didn't either. Can you imagine having a younger brother who rips on you nonstop and you never retaliate? And then one day, you're broken. And you realize... It's not just what he said is true. He is the truth. I think that's why you're going to find out that he actually, even though he's the senior pastor of the most significant church in the first century biblical world and is all the rights of an apostle, what does he call himself when he introduces himself? Any honorific title? No. Servant. Interesting. He's felt the weight of God challenging his life, so he's not going to be afraid to give us the same gift. James is going to introduce the key themes of his book in the opening few verses. In fact, verses 2 through 11 will introduce three major themes that the book will keep talking about. Again, like wisdom literature, it's not linear like an argument, i.e. Romans. 
It's circular. So he just keeps circling it. So you're going to find these themes coming back and forth. Here are the three themes. One is trials in the Christian life. Number two, wisdom. That's, that's living the Christian life. And number three, riches and poverty, i.e. money. Those aren't my topics. Those are his. In the next three weeks, we will look at the three texts where he introduces those things. We're just working through James, but he covers those topics first. He introduces them, and then he will continue to talk about them and related issues through the rest of the book. Overall, the goal of the book of James is that you, brothers and sisters, would have wholehearted devotions to the teaching of Jesus, i.e., you'd have pure religion, the same language that James is going to use in his book. And the title of this series through the book of James. All right, now let's look at verse 1. This book was written by a slave of God to give wisdom to the people of God. That's my summary of what verse 1 is trying to say, and I want to show that in a few ways. First, here's the verse. It's in your notes, but always good. Please regularly have your Bibles or some version open, uh, version of the Bible. We, have, we use the NIV on Sunday mornings. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the NIV translation. Now, letters have flexible openings, and this one is about as brief as you can get. He is not wanting to spend much time on himself. He honestly doesn't need to. You know who he is if you're the original audience. You know what he's done, and he knows you. So he does, and he's not expecting to see you because he knows you might be a long, long ways away. And you're probably not coming back because you're going to get the same fate he just got or is about to get. But interestingly, he calls himself not an apostle, not the brother of Jesus, which again is fascinating. He calls himself a servant. Now, to be honest with you, I, I'm not a big fan of the translation. And almost every translation does that. And I think they're doing that because of the American context. The Greek word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, can mean servant, but it normally means slave. That's the normal meaning. Ninety-some percent of the time when the word is used, it means slave. But in an American context, and this is an American publisher, as are most of the publishers, because where does the money reside for books and publishing and all those things in the United States of America? They know that slave has a different connotation, a negative one. The Bible's not afraid of our connotation. Servant has the sense of employee. Slave has the sense of ownership. And I want to tell you, with Jesus, it is not just employee. It is ownership. The brother of Jesus who doubted Jesus during his ministry, remember John 7, 5, is now saying he's enslaved to him. Now, certainly being a slave of Christ is an honorary thing. You are serving the king who has already served us. Nevertheless, the point is worthy of note. And it begs a question to us, the reader. What directs how you think about your relationship to Jesus? Is Jesus supposed to serve you? 
Is he your cosmic butler and divine therapist? When he doesn't give you what you want, are you feeling rightfully offended? How could you let me suffer in this way? What kind of a God are you? Now again, let me ask you, which slave ever speaks to their master in that way? Is Jesus supposed to serve you? Or are you supposed to serve Jesus? Be careful. Hey, remember, this isn't... This isn't the mommy with the band-aid book. This is a football coach asking you a tough question, probing right in your heart. Do you, generally speaking, almost implicitly, not because you're devising a plan, you've just made the world so much about you that when things go bad, you're kind of getting mad at God. The moment you feel that, that impulse, just know what you're doing. You are no longer seeing yourself as someone who is owned, who is fully dependent, who, is, who, who, who receives from God and gives whatever. You are expecting from him, like it's a quid pro quo. Well, I'll, I'll do something for you, God, but you're going to do something for me. That's not the language James is using. That word doulos means he is everything. I have no claim to make. If he were a cruel master, I'd be in trouble. Praise be to God, before I could ever serve him, he more fully and more faithfully already served me. So you're walking into a relationship where you know the kind of master. It's not like it's a new job. Like, let's see what this boss is like. Like, you know that this master is the most gracious, most loving, most sacrificial master you could ever even imagine. It's like your minds aren't big enough. None of ours are to grasp how generous and gracious he is. But who's the master? And who's the slave? And of course, for James, the answer is given in that first phrase. James, a slave of God... And of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the word Lord mean? It means master, king. Now, interestingly, notice James, another thing to reflect on in that opening line. James doesn't just say a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember to whom he writes. He's writing to a Jewish audience that loved to talk about God, but had loads of problems to talk about Jesus Christ. I put in your notes John 5 and a selection of verses from John 5 between verses 36 and 47. If you have your notes, look at those with me. I'm going to read them. Here Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders who are completely rejecting him because they think that's what faithfulness to God looks like. Here's Jesus talking. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. Notice how Jesus is trying to make a connection. You, you're believing in God. You're trusting in God. God, what God is doing is me. He goes on, and the Father 
who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses. Powerful statement to a bunch of Jews. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. Did you just hear that? I even underlined it in case you're going to miss it. Jesus just said that Moses wrote about Jesus. Now, you're never going to see the word Jesus in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but in Jesus' interpretation, when Moses was writing about the things of God, the person of God, the works of God, he was ultimately speaking about everything Jesus was and everything Jesus was going to do. So much so that Jesus could say, Moses was talking about me. So if you're really reading the Old Testament well, according to Jesus, then you're reading about me. That statement and this inclusion of God and the Lord Jesus Christ by James helps us as Christians, not just Jewish Christians, but all Christians, think rightly about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. For the Christian, the New Testament is not imposing on the Old Testament. It's not a replacement that begins something entirely new. My, my biblical theology class at Ted's is tired of me saying this statement from Augustine, that the moment I start it, they go, oh, we know, clink. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Jesus does not supplant what God was doing, but supplements and satisfies. For James, Christianity is not a new religion, but the consummation of what God began all the way back with Abraham. That leads us to that last phrase in verse 1. James says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, to be fair, that statement could be applied to all Christians in that figurative or symbolic way. In fact, the reason we know that is because that's exactly what 1 Peter does. He takes terms that in Exodus are applied only to Jews, and he uses those same terms to talk about the church. But, to be, but in light of the Jewish context and Jewish ministry, Jewish Christian ministry of James, it almost seems that he is using that to talk about Jewish Christians. The conduct of the letter and the known reality facing Jewish Christians under James' leadership suggests he is speaking to Jewish Christians in particular. Again, likely former parishioners of James to whom he now writes a pastoral letter. But that statement to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations means he knows you're living as aliens and strangers in a broken and fallen world. And that's a great way. I mean, literally after that, he goes, greetings. That's it. He's ready to go. But he knows that the people to whom he writes 
are in a broken and fallen world and need instruction. They need to learn how to live. They need wisdom. And while that perfectly fits these Jewish Christians in the moving toward middle of the first century, it speaks beautifully to our day to day. James, the letter of James, is seeking to help Christians live out their faith with seriousness and with wisdom. Remember the purpose of wisdom literature? Wisdom wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. Not because it wants to boss you around, because it wants to mold you. It wants to form you. It wants to strengthen you. It wants to heal you and redeem you from enslavement to the wrong things. It wants to pastor and shepherd you. So let me ask you this as we close our time in God's Word today. Are you ready in this series in James to let God get into your business and challenge how you live? And here's what I think is kind of cool. It honestly might not exactly matter if you are ready. Because as Jesus taught us, the Spirit moves where and when He wants. And nobody knows where it comes and where it goes. And it may just be that God, who is Master and Lord over all creation, including your life, may simply decide He's going to minister to your heart whether you are willing to open your eyes and soften your heart or not. But maybe we could model this younger brother of Jesus, fittingly as we're siblings of Christ and children of God ourselves and not do the path that James did where we stood in rebellion until we were broken by the Spirit of God. Maybe we come in willingly and say, you are our Lord. and We are your slaves. And we know you are a good master. You've proven that over and over again, specifically from your word. So we want you to look into our lives and to mold us and form us. Not because we know it's going to be easy. Because we know when it's the work you do, we know it's going to be good. So are you ready? Am I ready? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which this book is drenching with and empowered by. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit which ministers to us and even in spite of us. Thank you for the testimony of James, a slave of Christ. Lord, minister to your people in Hope Church. Minister to us as we begin this sermon series through the letter of James. Teach us Rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. Lord, even if it hurts or it's hard, we know your holiness is good. Work in us. Help us to be receptive. Help us to, every week, come in with that feeling of the gravity of thus saith the Lord. And we trust that you will be at work in and through and around us. We are so privileged to be bearers of your word. Help us to respond appropriately to it, we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen.